Welcome to the Explore Words Discover Worlds podcast, presented by Bradford Literature Festival. In this episode, we hear acclaimed Israeli-British historian Avi Shleim about his unique memoir from the lost world of Arab Jews. He was just five years old when anti-Semitic violence following the 1948 Arab-Israeli war forced his family to flee their beloved Iraq to live in a newly created Israel. Recorded live at the 2023 Bradford Literature Festival, this episode explores the disappearing heritage of Arab Jews caught in the crossfire of secular ideologies. My name is Mark Baer, Mark David Baer. I'm a professor of international history at the London School of Economics. And um, tonight, I have the pleasure to be in conversation with Avi Schleim, who's emeritus professor at Oxford University. And those of you who follow the Israeli-Palestinian um, conflict were, will certainly be well aware. I'm sure you've already read two of his, if not three of his very important books. Of course, he has written an intense... How long is, how long is your, your iron wall? How long? It's, it's um, 900 pages, and I give people two pieces of advice. One, don't bite, and two, if you bite, don't drop it on your foot. <laughs> Along with that, that book, which, um, which I read as an undergraduate, um, also is your very well-received um, biography of King Hussein of Jordan, which also continues this, this, his interrogation of Israel's foreign policy and Israel's relations with its neighbors. But tonight, I think what we're going to talk about is this splendid biography, which I've, I've read twice now. Um, again, I had a look at, um, well, come up here on the train, and it's, it's a brilliant work because it's actually, it's really quite polemical. It makes a very strong political argument, but it does so in a very gentle way. It's, uh, it's, tell, it's making a very important argument about a lot of things through the window of his own life story. And his life story has been remarkable, and I was, I was upset that the book only goes until he's 18, right? So 300 pages about the first 18 years of his life. And I asked, I said, will there be a part two? He said, no. <laughs> but, but I want to start out by asking about the title that you chose. Because in the title, um, the title is Three Worlds, Memoirs of an Arab Jew. I want to ask you about this phrase, Arab Jew. What do you mean by that? Why did you use it, and why is it important? Uh, so the three worlds of the title are Baghdad, where I lived up to the age of five, uh, Ramad Gan, a town in Israel near Tel Aviv, where I lived from, went to school from 5 to 15, um, and London, where I went to the Jewish free school uh, from the age of 15 to 18. And the book stops when I'm 18, but there is a long um, epilogue which uh, uh, traces the evolution of my attitude towards Israel and Zionism uh, right up to the present. And um, um, my wife, Gwyn, who is with me here, uh, read the book chapter by chapter as I was writing. And when she got to chapter five, she said to me, I'm very worried. Um, uh, I'm on chapter five and you weren't born yet. <laughs> And I said to her, that's the whole point. The book isn't about me. Uh, I'm not a particularly important or an interesting person, but I lived in interesting times. I lived in an Arab country among Muslims. Um, I lived through the first Arab-Israeli war in 1948 and the establishment of the State of Israel. And my family moved from an Arab country, Iraq, to Israel. Um, uh, so these were very interesting times. A lot happened 
in Jewish history. Uh, and I deliberately chose uh, the title, the subtitle is Memoir of an Arab Jew, because the, as you know, this is a very controversial term. In Israel, it's very much resented. Um, you can be a French Jew, you can be a Hungarian Jew, a Romanian Jew, a Brazilian Jew, uh, but if you say, and you can even be a German Jew, despite the association with the Holocaust. But if you say I'm an Arab Jew, you immediately get challenged. And Israelis would say to you, um, uh, that's an impossibility, it's a contradiction in terms. You can't be um, uh, an Arab Jew. If you are a Jew, you can't be an Arab, and if you are an Arab, you can't be uh, a Jew. Uh, and I beg to differ. Um, and uh, I don't want Israelis to impose an identity on me. Uh, in Iraq, we were Arab Jews. Mm -hmm. We spoke Arabic at home. Uh, our cuisine was Arab cuisine. Our culture was Arab culture. My parents' music was a very nice blend of Jewish and, uh, and uh, Arabic m music. So I can think of no better way to define myself as a young boy, to define my identity than that of, uh, of an Arab Jew. So I, I insist that there is such a thing, but um, Zionism tried to erase the notion of an Arab Jew, uh, but I still cling to it, and I think it's a meaningful concept. Right. And what I try to do in the book is to recreate the world of Arab Jews as I and my family experienced it. Right, so let's, let's go back to Baghdad. So you're born in 1945 in Baghdad. So describe for us what your life was like for those first five years when you lived in Iraq. What kind of life did Iraqi Jews, what kind of life did your family have? Um, so we weren't a typical Jewish family in Baghdad. Uh, there was a very large Jewish community of about 135,000 Jews. So that's about almost half of Baghdad's population, perhaps? Uh, a or third. A, a third, okay. And yeah. Baghdad was often described as a Jewish city. Hmm. In the First World War, the Jews were a third of the population. Uh, and on the Jewish uh, high holidays, the market was closed, shops were closed, the banks were closed. Uh, so it was a, a very, uh, the Jews were very prominent in, in Baghdad. And, the, and the, uh, the Jewish population goes back a long time. The, the Jewish population in Baghdad goes back to the Babylonian exile in the 6th century BC. So we were not newcomers. Right. We were certainly weren't intruders. We were there long before the rise of Islam mm -hmm. in the 7th seventh century. Right. Um, uh, and um, uh, there were Jews in every, at every level. Uh, there were very poor mm -hmm. Jews, and there were working class Jews. Right. Um, there were craftsmen. There were even a few, but not many Jewish farmers. Mm -hmm. uh, then there was a large Jewish middle class. Uh, and um, very wealthy, solid middle class. Mm -hmm. And we were upper middle class. My father was a very rich merchant with a very high social status. Um, he had uh, a store in which he sold building materials, mm -hmm. particularly uh, very smart bathroom sets from Britain. Mm -hmm. And it was a very conservative society and uh, um, patriarchal society, mm -hmm. and it was corrupt. So he knew many of the ministers, mm -hmm. uh, and even the king, King Faisal I, was one of his customers when he built a castle for himself. And ministers would come and buy uh, on credit um, building materials for the houses that they built. 
and he never chased them to pay up their bills. But then they made it some, um, uh, compensated him by giving him government um, uh, contracts. Right. So it was a very corrupt system, um, but not vicious. People dis didn't disappear from the streets. Mm -hmm. People weren't tortured, mm -hmm. uh, as happened after the Ba'ath came mm -hmm. to power in 1968. Mm -hmm. We led a very contented life, very, a life of luxury. Um, my mother was 17 years old. Mm -hmm. She was a schoolgirl. But your father was much older. He then. was 42, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, and it was an arranged marriage. Right. Not an arranged marriage. She didn't want to get married. She was forced by her family yeah. to marry this very wealthy, wealthy mm -hmm. eligible bachelor who had a wonderful villa. Um, and she, she was a schoolgirl. She went to the Alliance Israelite Universelle, which was uh, a network of Jewish schools throughout the Ottoman Empire. And Mark is a leading expert on the Ottoman uh, Empire. And in her school, the teaching language was French, mm -hmm. the medium of teaching was French, but they also learned uh, English, Hebrew, uh, and Arabic. And my mother died in Israel age 96, two years ago. But when her, in her 90s anyone dared suggest that she was dementing, she would declaim Archimedes' law in French. <laughs> So, so it was a very so, luxurious yeah, and comfortable. And quite privileged. Life. You were quite privileged. And I, privileged. in the book, you describe these amazing, amazing food. And you, these, these, you would go on a boat to an island and you'd have this picnic. But describe that for us, because you know, really take us into Baghdad in the late 1940s. My mother was a lady of leisure. And in, in the summer, we would, uh, a lot of Jews and some of my mother's uncles, one of her uncles, had a boat and a boatman, uh, and we would go on an outing uh, on the Tigris River, and we had a, a Muslim boatman who would buy a big fish uh, in the wharf, and then he wouldn't kill the fish. They wouldn't kill the fish for him. They would tie it, and he would tie it to the boat, and um, drag it and take us to the island. So it's fresh. It stays fresh, right? <laughs> Yeah. And then the boatman would get out a sharp knife and cut up the fish, fill it with spices, with tomatoes and onions. And this is a famous Jewish delicacy. It's called uh, masguf, barbecued fish, uh, that uh, barbecued on a fire, on a spit. And um, the pleasure of eating it was greatly increased by eating it in our hands rather than on a plate. Mm -hmm. So that was quite typical of the kind of uh, leisurely life, luxurious mm -hmm. life. I would say sybaritic style, lifestyle, but my editor in one world said, counted that I used the adverb, adjective sybaritic six times. <laughs> now, do, you, do you think you're, you're I mean, it also sounds a bit nostalgic and it sounds a bit perfect in a way. But there were, there were tensions and there were problems. I mean, you were, you were the son and you had two sisters. And your parents went out of the way to lavish their, you know, praise uh, on you to the, to the detriment of your sisters, right? Um, so boys were greatly preferred to girls in Baghdad, in the Jewish community mm -hmm. in those days, because boys didn't involve the honor of the family, and they grew up to be breadwinners, mm -hmm. whereas girls were regarded as a liability, almost a curse, because if they met with a Muslim, uh, they could dishonor the family. Mm -hmm. So there's the honor of the family at stake, and girls were expected not to have a good education, not to be independent, but to marry a Jewish boy and bring up a family. And my grandmother, who lived with us in Baghdad, used to say to my sisters, uh, 
אבי הוא אל אסל ואנתום קשור אל בסל. אבי is the honey and you are the peels of the onion. Uh, and I was too young to understand what was going on, the family dynamics. It's only when I grew up that I realized how privileged I was and how disadvantaged my sisters were. So I apologized to them and I tried to make it up to them in any way I could. And they say they, they forgave me because it wasn't my fault. Now in the book, you dedicate the book to, to, these, to your sisters and to your mother and your grandmother. So there's a series of strong women in your life that despite everything, your mother, despite having to marry at 17 against her will, it's, it's actually a very independent, feisty um, character as she emerges in this book. Um, very strong women mm. in the family. And my wife, Green, is the one who suggested I was going to de dedicate this book to her, but she said, no, dedicate it to, uh, and she should suggest at the wedding, the book is dedicated to the women who accompanied me on the journey. That's mostly my grandmother, um, Ida, my mother, and my two sisters, uh, Dalia and Vilma. Mm -hmm. But my grandmother was a very, very strong um, character, uh, and so was my mother. My mother was 17 when she got married, but she was very, and she didn't want to get married, but she was very pragmatic, and once she was married, she made the most of it mm -hmm. and led the life of a, a lady uh, of leisure. But when we lost our wealth in the transition to Israel, my father was a broken man. Yeah. He was tried two business ventures, and he was cheated, and he was unemployed until he died. Whereas my mother was very resourceful. Mm -hmm. I think women in general are more resourceful um, than, than men. And when the money ran out, she became a telephonist in the town hall, mm -hmm. and she became the, the breadwinner. Right. So yes, very strong, and also. Um, I was a dumbo. I didn't have any talents. And every year at school, the teachers want, wanted me to repeat the year, but my mother wouldn't let them. Mm -hmm. She would fight for me and tell them to give me another chance, and she promised them I would do good in the end. <laughs> so, so I owed a lot to my mother. Absolutely. So, so the first third of the book is about life in Iraq, and it's rather nostalgic, it's rather positive, it's rather... Um, uh, a positive depiction. But then something went wrong because the Jews of Iraq left. So tell us, you know, if life was so good for Jews in Iraq, what happened at the end of the 1940s? I mean, what, what external factors made it so that life, so that the category Arab Jew disappeared? Two things happened. The rise of Arab nationalism and the rise of Jewish nationalism mm -hmm or Zionism, Zionism yeah. at the same time mm. um, after the First World War in the interwar period. So there was a long tradition of religious tolerance in Iraq. The Jews were one minority among many minorities. Right. Uh, Assyrians, Catholic, Chaldeans, Turkmans, Circassians, Iraq did not have a Jewish problem. Mm -hmm. Europe had a Jewish problem. Right. In Europe, Jews lived in ghettos. Um, uh, and I in Iraq, the Jews didn't live in ghettos. And they were, um, they uh, covered all the, the professions. And Iraq didn't have a Jewish problem until the rise of nationalism. And the nationalist Iraqis tried to, st started singling out the Jews as the problem. And the Jews who had been uh, a, a pillar of Iraqi society <coughs> were identified increasingly as a fifth column. Mm -hmm. And Zionism gave the Jews, for the first time in history, uh, a territorial base. There was a Jewish state, Israel, and it was easier to say to Jews in Iraq or Egypt or Syria or Lebanon, 
uh, you don't belong here, you're outsiders. Uh, you belong with the Zionists, your brothers. So if you don't like it here, why don't you go and join uh, your Zionist brothers in Palestine? And there was another issue. Zionism, after the First World War, staged the systematic takeover of Palestine. And this process culminated in the 1948 war, the establishment of the State of Israel, which involved a monumental injustice to the Palestinians. In 1948, three quarters of a million Palestinians, more than half the Arab population, were made refugees, and the name Palestine was wiped off, off the map. And this provoked a lot of hostility and a backlash against the Jews throughout um, uh, the Arab lands. This, this, this is what happened. And some of these Iraqi nationalists were influenced by the Nazis. And there was a pogrom against Jews in Baghdad in 1941, right, when several hundred Jews were killed. Now, there's also the issue of British imperialism, British colonialism. Now, your family actually had British citizenship. So again, your, your family is unusual, not only being part of the elite and being wealthy, but also then you had, in a sense, a way out. How did your family also have British citizenship, or parts of your family? Uh, I asked my mother, what is your identity? She, was a, she said, I am 100% Iraqi, but I had an extra thing. I was also British. Um, and uh, my family, my mother's side of the family, had British citizenship because her father was born in India, in Bombay, under the Raj. So he was British by birth. But when he was a teenager, uh, his family moved back to Baghdad. And in Baghdad, uh, he was a translator, and he worked for the British consulate in Baghdad. Uh, so, um, the family had a close connection with the British authorities. And one of my uncles, uh, my mother's elder brother, Isaac, I Isaac Shalom Meir Obadiah. Here, if you say, you want to say, say some, some, something, is easy to say, and Bob is your uncle, and Bob is your uncle. I say, and Isaac Shalom Meir Obadiah is your uncle. <laughs> uh, and in 1942, he, uh, he, he was um, a merchant. He used to import whiskey from uh, Scotland. And in 1942, he went to the British consulate to, uh, to, and had applied for a visa to go to Britain. And he filled in a form. Uh, and then the clerk said to him, wait, um, the, the consul wants to talk to you. So you're summoned to meet the consul. And the consul said to him, um, Mr. Obadiah, we are very impressed uh, with you, with your knowledge of languages. We would like to offer you a commission. And my uncle thought, it was, he almost asked, how much? What percent do I get? What right? percent? That was a, a, a deal. <laughs> he didn't know it was, it was a military commission. And, and he said, that would be office. very nice. And the consul went away and brought a watch of forms, and my uncle started filling them, and gradually dawned on him. Signing up for this. <laughs> it was a commission to join the British Army. But he went through with it, and he became a lieutenant, in the British intelligence, mm -hmm. but he never had any training. He became uh, an interpreter in the British, um, and so did uh, his uh, other brother, uh, Saleh. So, so the whole community, the whole family had British passports. And then they settled in England after the war, right? My uncle Isaac Shalom Obadiah, after the war, he could be asked to be demobilized any where he wanted, and he asked to, uh, to be demobilized in London. Right, okay. 
So, so there is that connection as well. Now, so 1945, you're born. 1948, Israel's created. Then in 1950, most Iraqi Jews end up in Israel. And the most explosive, it's a pun, but the most explosive chapter in your book is, is um, what is it? You use the word bomb, chapter, don't you? Chapter 7. Chapter 7, which is probably the, the chapter that's going to get you into the most controversy. Baghdad bombshell. Now, why is it that the Jews of Iraq left Iraq in, in that time period, around 1950? So, after the 1948 war, there was a backlash against the Jews. There was great hostility at the popular level. People really resented the Jews and resented what the Zionists had done in Palestine. And some Palestinian refugees from Palestine arrived right. um, in Iraq. And they couldn't distinguish between Iraqi Jews, Israeli Jews? They thought the Iraqi Jews were the same? Uh, the or Iraqi nationalists refused to distinguish. Mm. They were one and the same. Uh -huh. So th there was popular hostility, but also, and more importantly, there was official persecution mm. of the Jews after the war, yeah. led by the government. Right. The government didn't follow the, the street. The government led the hostility towards the Jews and persecuted the Jews, uh, and this took many forms. Jews were dismissed from government service. Uh, restrictions were made, were placed on Jewish merchants and what they could do. Restrictions were placed on Jewish um, uh, bankers. And also, there were quotas for Jewish. It became more difficult for uh, young Jews to go to colleges. and. Uh, to acquire qualifications. And there's also blackmail and kidnapping and there's executions of some leading figures in the community, right? Yes. Um, uh, p policemen could arrest Jews on trumped-up charges mm -hmm. and one of them was that they were Zionists. Mm -hmm. And Zionism became a criminal offense in 19... 48, and there was a lot of arrests of wealthy Jews to extract money from them rather than because they were uh, supporting Zion, Zionism. And one very f famous, very rich, the richest Jew in Basra, Shafiq Adas, who was extremely well connected, was arrested and tried on trumped up charges of selling weapons to Israel, and he was friends with the region, and everyone thought it'd be impossible, um, but the region didn't intervene, and he, he was executed, he was hanged, and all his property was confiscated. Mm -hmm. So they, this was a signal right. that life was no longer safe for Jews. But there were bombings of synagogues as well. But who was responsible for those bombings? In March 1950, the government passed a law which said any Jew who wants to leave the country is free to do so. They have a year to register. Mm -hmm. And very few Iraqis chose to register to leave mm -hmm. because they were Iraqis. Sure. Right. They didn't have any other country. Right. There wasn't the lure of Zion. Um, there wasn't the ideological attraction of going to to um, Israel, uh, and uh, so very few registered, and it's important to stress that those Jews who wanted to leave could only go to Israel, uh -huh. they couldn't go anywhere else, mm -hmm. they had no option, because it's a one-way visa yeah. to leave Iraq, and only Israel would take them, and Israel arranged the transport. So in the year, the first year, very few Israeli, um, Iraqis opted to go to Israel. Um, and then five bombs exploded in Jewish sites. And by the end of 1952, 
125,000 out of 135,000 Iraqi Jews ended up in, in Israel. And it's not part of my argument that the bombs were the main reason for the exodus. All I say is that it was a factor which has to be taken into account. Moreover, that the Zionist underground, under, the, uh, under orders and direction from the Mossad, was responsible for three out of the five bombs. Well, this, so this, this, is is this is outrageous. This is absolutely outrageous because the, the argument in Israel is that Jews had no place in Muslim countries in the Arab world because they were always persecuted, they're always subject to violence and anti-Semitism. But then if, if Israel is bombing the synagogues, it just, you know, it's just shocking, really shocking. So how have people responded to this chapter in the book? Well, some British Jews have written blogs. Um, Lynn Julius wrote a review in the Jewish Chronicle, mm -hmm. and she said that this is outrageous, mm -hmm. what I say, that it was uh, Iraqi anti-Semitism that forced the Jews out, and here I come and say, uh, yes, um, there was some anti-Semitism, but Israel also played a part mm. uh, in, in the exodus. Uh, and she says that I misrepresent Iraqi history, but I don't. I tell Iraqi history uh, as, as objectively as I can, warts and all. There are lights, there are shadows as well as, as lights um, in the story, and I don't try to deny that. But I insist that I now have undeniable evidence of Israeli involvement mm, right. in the bombs. And I argue that this wasn't a one-off. It was part of a pattern of what I call, or someone else called, cruel Zionism. It's part of a pattern of false flag operations involving the Mossad and um, uh, local Jews. And the other more famous example of a false flag, oper or false flag operation is um, the Lavon affair in 1954. Uh, uh, Jews planted bombs in a cinema to try and create bad blood between in the Nasser regime. Right? In, in Cairo, right? In Cairo, yeah. hmm. to create bad blood between the Nasser regime uh, and the West. Hmm. And the people in this, uh, the Jews in this uh, spying and, uh, and sabotage ring were caught, all caught, rounded up, and so was the Israeli controller, the Mossad officer who controlled the ring, who activated the ring, and he committed suicide in a Cairo prison. Mm -hmm. His name was Max Binet. Max Binet was the very same officer who in 1950 was based in, um, in uh, Tehran, okay. because in those days there were secret covert relations between Israel and the Shah. So he operated from Tehran, and he gave Yosef Basri, the, under, the underground Zionist, he gave him the maps, um, the instructions, the information, and the TNT, the TNT, he gave him that. Mm. Then Basri was arrested and tried, yeah. and it was a proper trial, and among one piece of evidence against him was that the TNT in his car, the traces, was the same as uh, in the bomb site. Wow. Okay. So, so it was a pattern of Israel using false class, false flag operations mm -hmm. and using, exploiting local Jews, turning them against their country, uh, and these Jews paid with uh, freedom, sometimes with their life, yeah. and they lost their homeland. Right. So I'm very, very critical of, of Israel for the part it played. Right, now, so Israel did all this 
to ensure that Iraq's Jews migrated to Israel. And as yes. you said, 125,000 of 135,000 went there in 1950. But then how did Israel treat them when they, when they arrived? Because they, they were building a, a new state and they needed people, they were Jewish people, right? Because it it's a state for Jewish people. So they wanted to bring in Jews from around the world. So if they wanted the Iraqi Jews so bad, how did they actually treat them when they arrived? This is the, this is, um, the second section of the book is about, yes. is about Israel, Iraqi it, Jews in Israel. It's a very important question and the Zionist narrative claims that uh, the Jews were persecuted yeah. and Israel nobly offered them a sanctuary and a haven when Israel was a young state with limited resources, but it went out of its way to welcome them and to absorb them. The truth of the matter is rather different. Uh, these Jews arrived uh, by plane from Iraq in Israel, and at the airport they were sprayed with DDT, with infesticide. They were treated like animals, and um, uh, this was very traumatic. This was what the first experience when they arrived in the Promised Land, and then they were taken to transit camps. The conditions in the transit camps were very, very poor. Uh, hygiene was very poor. The food was terrible. Now, in fairness to Israel, it was two years old, and there were also immigration from Romania and from Poland, and it was difficult to cope with so many immigrants. The immigrants from Europe got preferential treatment. The immigrants from the Arab lands suffered a lot uh, in the transit um, camps. And the ones from Iraq arrived with a suitcase and 50, 50 dinars. That's all. And they were trapped. They couldn't leave. So uh, Israel was struggling, but and here is the cultural factor that came into play. The Ma'abarot, the transit camp managers, were all European Jews. Mm. They didn't have a clue about these people and where they came from. They were an Iraqi middle class, professionals, right. doctors, right. judges, lawyers, and they were all treated the same. They treated badly, they suffered, and they were told that they should be grateful for what they were getting. So, uh, having brought these Iraqi Jews to Israel, they were treated very badly, and they struggled a lot to get on their feet. And your family illustrates that. So your family, you know, your father was a very proud man, very well-dressed man, who had this magnificent home. Even the king, didn't, didn't the king take an interest in your mother, or was that your sister? Uh, that was, you were that, the, that was, the elite of the it elite. It was King, king Farouk of Egypt. Ah, okay. This is in the golden days right. uh, when my mother and her mother went to Cairo and to Alexandria in 1947 on holiday. And they went, they stayed in the Hotel Cecile, which was a very posh hotel. And they went to a nightclub, Sans Souci. Uh, and there was King Farouk there and his equerry came and talked to my mother in French, and he said, a very important personality would like to meet you, but not here. Uh, would you come with us to the palace? And my mother replied in French that they would love to go, but they were expecting her husband to come and pick them up. And then she told her mother, we, we must clear out of here very, very quickly. <laughs> so, so this is... This is where your family was in, you know, in Egypt and Iraq, right? Absolutely, the elite of the elite. And then you go to Israel. What was the effect on your family? Your father came later, right? Yeah. So, so what happened to your, 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 your proud, wealthy, Arabic-speaking, connected family in the new country of Israel? My mother, her mother, my two sisters and I left Baghdad in 1950 on a regular flight to Cyprus on their British passport and my sisters and I were written into my mother's passport, so we were allowed to leave. And after a couple of months in Cyprus, we went by boat to Haifa, 
uh, in my, so we didn't go to Marlborough. Uh, my mother's uncle, Jacob, who had a villa in Ramat Gan, came um, and picked us up, and we lived with him for uh, a while. So we didn't suffer as much as the others. But my father was an Iraqi. He wasn't British. And he left, he sold as much of his property as he could. He sold our house for a fraction of its real value. And he um, was helped by Kurdish smugglers across the border into Iran, and then uh, Tehran, and then he joined us a year or, a year or so later in, in Israel. And he has lost most of his property, and he could never got back on his feet. So right, right. He, he never recovered from the upheaval. And I write, as you know, that in Hebrew, going to Israel is called Aliyah, ascent. But for us, it was a very steep Yerida, steep descent to the margins of Israeli society. And he never really learned Hebrew, right? He never really mastered Hebrew. No, he never learned Hebrew. He, he was in his 50s then? Or yes, yeah. he was 55 when he arrived. Right. And now your mother, though, as you mentioned, was resourceful. And she had a, she had a yes. job at the, at the city. And she was always able to, you know, uh, find a way to help you out. And you, you had a difficult time. And you talk in the book about some, some pain. You begin the book with this very embarrassing situation where your father comes up to you and speaks to you in Arabic. But you're now in, you're in Israel, and it's not cool. You know, everyone, you, everyone's speaking Hebrew, so you're, you're ashamed in a way. And that sense of shame um, would stay with you, I think, almost as far as until you're 18, you join the military. Yeah. That was, it seems like it, all, at that point, almost at the end of the book, near the end of the book, when you're, you're in the Israeli military, then you're treated as an equal. But up until that point, the, the teachers are mean to you, you know, the teachers always want to hold you back, um, you have no motivation in school, and um, you know, life, life isn't the way it was in Iraq. Mm. I didn't encounter overt racism. No one said to me, you are an Iraqi, you are inferior. But it was in the air. But you felt it. I felt yeah. it. I felt it very acutely. It was in the air. Uh, everything European was considered superior. Mm. Everything um, Arab was inferior and primitive. Mm -hmm. And Arabic was considered an ugly and primitive language. Mm. Uh, and I absorbed all that. I internalized all the prejudice. It was only many, many years later, when I was a professor at Oxford, that I learned to read and write Arabic and realized what a beautiful language it is. Um, uh, and Mark is a great linguist. He, he knows about eight languages, including Arabic, Ottoman, Turkish, Persian. Oh, anyway, we're talking about we're talking about Iraqi <laughs> Jews. So then, so then, um, your father never recovers. He never recovers, and no. and that's the, one of the saddest aspects of the book is is your father is is really a broken man, and your your mother divorces him, and then he's he's even more you know he lives alone in the, in this one room uh, flat you know it's just it's just crushing but that's but that's the, the genius of this book because through the life of your father we can understand a much bigger story a much bigger tragedy and how Arabic speaking Jews were treated as second-class citizens in the Jewish state. Now, the, the last, we only have a few more minutes and then I want to open up to questions. The last part of the book brings you to England. And, um, and that in itself is an interesting story. And, and how you got into university is kind of corrupt too, right? You, you mentioned that, how you got in. Um, but um, it's only, it was only later in life where you were able to really understand what had happened to you and your family and to other Arabic-speaking Jews. So what was, what was the turning point? It was, it was in the late 60s, right? The Six-Day War, the 1967 war. Was that, was that the turning point for you? That was the turning point in the Six-Day War, June 1967, was the turning point in Middle East history. It's the turning point in the relations between Israel and the Arab world. And it was a turning point for me personally, because in the mid-1960s, I served in the Israeli army. I did national service. I served 
loyally and proudly in the IDF, the Israel Defense Forces, because in my time it was true to its name. It was the Israel Def De Defense Forces. And the Israeli army confronted uh, regular armies of the neighboring Arab states. But after 67, everything changed. And Israel became a colonial power. Israel trebled its territory. It captured the Golan Heights from Syria, the West Bank uh, f from Jordan, and the Sinai Peninsula from Egypt. And my little army, its entire character changed. It became the brutal police force of a brutal colonial power. So my disenchantment with Israel isn't, isn't sudden, but that's when it starts. Okay, and then, but then you're also abroad, so you never went back to Israel. No. You left. And I never served in the, in the reserves. I did wow. military service, came to England. Right. I was a history student at Cambridge, and I've never served in the reserves, and I've stayed in, uh, stayed in Britain until now. Right. Did, you, did, you keep, did they take away your citizenship because you didn't continue to serve the military? Or were you able to... No. 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 Um, it's very, very difficult to... They never take your citizenship mm. away from you. And it's very, very difficult to surrender Israeli citizenship. So I remain with okay. two, two... I have a dual citizenship. I have an Israeli passport and a British passport. Right. So, but, but, but in a sense, maybe it's easier to criticize Israel from here than being part of that society, right? So you're here, you have some distance. You could see uh, having your own experience as an Iraqi and also then having some distance, you're able to, to be more critical of it. It's a lot easier to criticize Israel from here. And I get attacked a lot by Israelis. Um, and, um, but I'm indifferent because for me, Oxford is the center of the universe. Okay. Some people would say Cambridge is or London, but that's okay. But, um, but let's, let's end on a positive note, though, because you, despite everything, you still have a vision for how Palestinians and Israelis can, um, can be at peace with each other. Uh, I have this vision because of my history. Right. No other way, because we didn't, my family and I, Muslim-Jewish coexistence wasn't an abstract um, idea. It's what we experience every day. We touched it. And I speak with, I write with some nostalgia mm -hmm. about this um, wonderful world, uh, cosmopolitan, cosmopolitan world, uh, which was blown away by the cold winds of nationalism right. in the 20th century. But because I've experienced it, I don't look at Arabs as the enemy, but as people, as real people, as a, as a proud uh, and dignified uh, and sensitive people. And I would like to reconstruct uh, that world. Of course, I cannot reconstruct it. It's gone away. It's been blown away. But I know it was possible once, and I think it is possible Again, it would be something remote uh, that what, one thing is clear unless we have, we have the kind of civilized dialogue between minorities and coexistence between Muslims and Jews, we are never going to get past the present impasse. And you, and you, you envision a, a, a secular democratic state where everyone's equal. Whatever the religion, one 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 democratic state from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, for all with equal rights for all its citizens, regardless of religion and ethnicity. Okay. And on that hopeful note, let's turn it over to the audience. And there's a microphone coming around. We have about ten minutes, which isn't long. There were a couple hands in the front. Um, I just wanted to ask to what extent the Arab Jews in Israel had been able to hang on to their culture or wanted to hang on to their culture. Did they have a sense of exile after 1952? And to what extent did they hang on to their culture and still retain that within Israel? So my generation didn't retain our culture and folklore. We tried to become new Israelis, to be absorbed. And many Arab Jews 
uh, vote for right-wing parties because they become nationalistic and they want to prove that they have nothing to do, that they have nothing but contempt for Arabs. And I flirted with right-wing ideas when I was a teen, teenager. I only saw the light much uh, later. The division between Ashkenazi and Sephardi Jews continues to the Israel to this day. Although there's been intermarriage, there is still a clear division, cleavage between Ashkenazi Jews and Sephardi Jews. But in recent decades, there's been a, a resurgence of uh, Arab culture and folklore. So you have Israeli singers who were born in Israel, but they sing in Arabic and they have concerts in Arabic. So that's a very positive thing. Thank you. I, I saw another hand near the front. Gentleman in the black shirt. Uh, okay, first of all, thank you so much. I mean, this was really uh, such a rich conversation. Uh, my question to you, uh, Professor Shalem, is that um, if, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the British had quite a bit of influence with the uh, Iraqi regime, at least until the coup in 1958. They must have known of uh, the Iraqi government's actions against the Jewish community in, in Iraq. Uh, was it a matter that they were unable to do anything or exert some kind of uh, influence to, to have them stop this? Uh, or were they unwilling to go ahead and do that? Um, I was wondering if you had any, any comment on that. Thank you. I'm extremely critical in the book about British colonialism because Britain after the war had the mandate over Iraq and Britain determined the borders of Iraq, Britain chose the political system in Iraq and Britain imposed a hand-picked ruler, Faisal I, who came from the Hijaz, he was a foreigner. The British imposed him as king in Iraq and they rigged the referendum. Many referenda have been rigged in the Middle East ever since, but the British were the first to rig a referendum. Uh, and there have been a lot of tyrants who play divide and rule. Um, Putin today is the latest example, but the British were the ones who played divide and rule uh, in Iraq. And one of the reasons for Iraqi Muslim resentment of the Jews and the Christians is that the British gave them uh, preferential uh, treatment. So there's qu quite a lot about British colonialism in Iraq and it's um, the tricks they played on the Iraqis. Well, also in the book you, you say that actually the British are responsible for allowing the pogrom to happen against Jews in Baghdad. Don't start me on this. <laughs> so the, the British uh, come in for a lot of criticism the, in, the, in the book. The, there was should. a long history of harmony and coexistence but there was one pogrom in 1941, and I argue at length in the book that the um, uh, person mostly responsible for this pogrom was Sir Kinahan Cornwallis, who was the British ambassador to Baghdad. My parents hated him, but they couldn't uh, pronounce his name, so they called him al kalb kalb the dog and son of a dog. Thank you very, very much. And there's such parallels with today where anybody who has uh, Jews who have empathy with Palestinians have a very hard time, not least in that once progressive Labour Party. You might want to comment on that, but my question is a bit different. It's how does, that, how does the story of coming from Israel that there is a nation and all us Jews have origins in the land that is now Israel and Palestine, how does that square with claiming that there's no Arabic nature to Jews if we all have our origins in the Arabic lands of, um, of that area? So the, 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 the contradiction is, is, could you repeat the contradiction then, that, the, the well, irony? I, I mean, my sense, maybe I'm wrong about this, is that no. the, the Old Testament of Jews is an, an Arabic origin culture. How is it well, that they... Zionism is an Ashkenazi thing. My mother used to wax lyrical about the wonderful Muslim friends that we have. And one day I asked her, uh, did we have any Zionist friends? And she looked at me as if I was very... This is a very strange question. And she said, no, Z Zionism is an Ashkenazi thing. It's nothing to do with us. 
So, so Zionism is a movement by European Jews for European Jews. Israelis have never wanted to be part of the region. They always regarded themselves as part of the West. Israel has always refused to integrate culturally or, and politically in, in, in any other way uh, in the region. David Ben-Gurion, the first Prime Minister of the State of Israel, once said, it's only as a result of a, an accident, a, a geographical accident, that we find us here in the Middle East. Our culture and our values make us part of the West. And to me, that is the problem, because I'm an Arab Jew, I'm part of the region, I want to have open borders uh, and uh, cooperation uh, and with the rest of the region. But the Israelis don't look at it uh, that way. And sadly, Arab Jews in Israel also, as I was saying earlier, also don't want to be part of the region, but look down on, uh, on Arabs. And this is a problem which is very fundamental, which I would like to overcome. Thank you. We've got two more minutes, if there's one more question, or two more questions. There's a person in the back and there's a person in the front. We, we have time for both questions. Hi. Okay, this is Hutzpah, seems we've got such a short time left, but I note your comments and that you seem to prefer the idea of a sort of a single state rather than a two-state solution. Let's just say the different opinions are on that. I'm certainly more inclined to what you believe, but one problem is that the mood in Israeli society doesn't seem to be towards that, and the demographics seem to be pointing more towards the right. Do you have any thoughts about how a move towards what you see as an ideal could be attained given the way things appear to be in this year, 2023? No. Israel has been moving steadily to the, to, to the right. It's become more xenophobic. The present government is the most right-wing, xenophobic, and overtly racist and, and homophobic government in Israel's history. There is no way that this kind of government or the present Israeli public would agree to a one-state solution. Israel is an apartheid state. It's a Jewish supremacist uh, state. And Israel is the only member of the United Nations that I know that is officially racist. I'm only talking about my views and what I think. And I used to support a two-state solution, but Israel killed the two-state solution. The two-state, with settlements and with expansion, Israel could kill the two-state solution. It's no longer feasible. All that is left to the Palestinians is a series of enclaves which would make a viable state. So the two-state solution is dead. It's as dead as a dodo. It's a de as dead as the Oxford dodo whom I visit regularly in the Natural History Museum. Uh, so what's the alternative? For me, the alternative is the one I described, one state with equal rights for all its citizens. Uh, I don't think it's remotely um, uh, uh, possible, but it's a noble vision, uh, and uh, it's what Israel has left by eliminating the two-state solution. As far as I'm concerned, it left only one democratic solution, which is the one-state solution. Okay, thank you. And it is 8 o'clock, but we could quickly take your question and get a quick question, a quick answer, the, the woman in the yellow shirt, and then we'll, we'll close Hi. the session. Um, um, I'm interested in your experience, your personal experience, you know, as an Arab Jew, as an Arab, as, as a Jew, that come together as an Arab Jew. I want to ask whether you have um, a, a double burden, double pain, you're hurting twice, your wound is deeper because of this double identity, and you feel displaced linguistically, geographically. How much effect it affected you as a person who has lost everything, and you know, what is your experience really, you as a person, thank you. I've suffered a lot. I've suffered displacement, had to make adjustments 
in my life. What I take from my own experience is how much more the Palestinians have suffered than I have. Uh, the Palestinians were turned into refugees, th three quarters of a million. In 1967, Israel captured the West Bank, completed the capture of the whole of 100% of historic Palestine, created another wave of refugees, another quarter of a million. So Israel is responsible for expelling a million refugees. Uh, and what I learned in the process of writing this book is the parallel between our experience as Iraqi Jews and being displaced from our homeland and the experience of the Palestinians of being uh, displaced. So what I take from my own history and my own suffering is the importance of humanity, the importance of avoiding prejudice, the importance of not demonizing uh, other people, uh, and um, the importance of supporting the Palestinian um, cause, standing for justice for Palestinians. So that's what I stand for, but I'm not as ardent and active as supporter of Palestinian rights as, as is my wife, Gwyn Daniel, so I pay homage to her for her commitment to the Palestinian cause. Okay, thank you. Well, thank you very much for the, the conversation. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.